0: There you got to be, you're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, filmmaker TJ Parcell joins us from Nashville and we chat with activist Rodney Kroon. 3CR! Well, TJ Parcell's film Invisible explores the story of queer folks in the American music scene in Nashville. And I chatted with him this week.
1: Well, Invisible is about a group of gay women singer-songwriters in Nashville um, and how they had to navigate the patriarchy of the Nashville music industry and how they persevered in spite of a number of institutional and uh, other forces that kind of conspired to keep them down. And yet they persevered anyhow.
0: Tell us about some of the women in the film and their incredible stories of resilience.
1: Okay, I sure will. Um, There's uh, 12 women in the film and one trans man. And, uh, you know, their experiences uh, run the gamut of uh, uh, some of the women were uh, chose to be in the closet because the industry was so homophobic. And uh, uh, some of the women in the film, uh, Diane Davidson uh, or Mary Gaucher, I think, you know, in a very self-effacing way said, you know, look, there's no closet big enough for this. They, uh, um, uh, so each of their their journeys are interesting and are, are explored in the film. Diane Davidson is a uh, an artist who moved to Nashville when she was 16 years old. By the time she was 21, she had four albums um, she had tremendous success. She was touring with Linda Ronstadt and uh, the Moody Blues. The fourth album, however, had a lesbian love song, and that killed her career. And, uh, you know, that was in the 1970s. Around the same time, there's another um, woman in our film, uh, Kai Fleming, who is in the, uh, uh, both the Nashville uh, Songwriting Hall of Fame and now the, the, the National Songwriting Hall of Fame. Kai Fleming has written so many number one hits, she doesn't know how many she's written. Um, when Kai came to town, she wrote some songs for Barbara Mandrell, and, and her first year out, her and her business, uh, her writing partner, uh, were Songwriters of the Year. And Kai had immediate success. her The stakes were immediately high for her. And so in Kai's case, um, she put her sexuality on the shelf um, because she knew um, that if uh, she was open about who she was, it would kill her career. And yet, she's written for everyone. Um, even the the, uh, the Tennessee State song "Smoky Mountain Rain" is is one of her songs. Um, other artists in the uh, in the film include Ruthie Foster, who's a uh, blues uh, singer out of uh, Texas. Ruthie is uh, uh, has been out for years and. Uh, you know, her journey's been slightly different than some of the Nashville women, but I think in, in Ruthie's case she's an incredibly talented um artist, um, brings people to their feet every time they come to a concert. But, you know, she seems to have if uh continued to hit a kind of a glass ceiling. Um uh Sidney Bullens is the trans artist in our film and uh he he um his story is very interesting because uh, here's someone who's lived um both sides of the gender line in the music industry, both as a woman and as a man. And so we thought that he brought, um, his story brought some unique perspective to the film. 3CR. Yeah, you know, there's a friend of mine who's my producing partner. He came to me with the idea about four years ago. He said, TJ, I've got this great idea for a film. Um, he said, gay women in country music, there is this... Um, very large network of gay women songwriters who've written for everybody. Um, and, uh, he said, many of them are my friends. And I was immediately struck by it, like, wow. Um, now there's two things that don't seem to go together very easily, you know, gay women in, in the Nashville music scene. Um, and you know, I, before I became a filmmaker, I was in software for many years and, uh, I, I I was in sales and my job was to sell to middle-aged uh, heterosexual white men who mostly lived in the suburbs. And my job was to build relationships with these folks. And, uh, and I kind of knew that, uh, talking about my boyfriend wasn't going to build any relationships. So for me at that time in my life, it was a business decision was kind of the way that I looked at it. And, uh, you know, I think it was through the lens of that experience. I was uh, curious right away. I, I wanted to have some conversations with these women to understand what was it like for them. What kind of compromises did they um, have to make, and and what did those uh, what did those choices that they made what did that cost them? Um, and uh, and then I think ultimately what I was struck by and inspired by was that in each and every one of their cases, in spite of all these forces that um, seemed to uh, conspire to keep them down, their voices came through anyway, their art came through anyway, and they, they remained true to their creativity. And uh, it's one of the things that I, I hope uh, that viewers will get out of the film. It's just it's um, incredible music, very moving music, and these women's stories and, and their uh, uh, resilience and their tenacity and uh, their vulnerability is, um, is striking.
0: I got very emotional, you know, watching and listening to Diane Davidson's story and just how homophobia, you know, killed her career. But I found the scene incredibly moving when she was reunited with Linda Ronstadt after all these decades and just the rapport they had, but also how Diane is, you know, in the film, back in the recording studio, doing a new album without those constraints that killed her career in the 1970s.
1: Well, you know, we premiered the film two weeks ago in San Francisco at the Frameline Film Festival, and the night before we screened, we went to Linda's house to show her the film for the first time, and uh, uh, it was an incredibly moving experience because Linda was was very shaken, and, and, uh, you know, Linda loves Diane, and uh, when uh, Diane told her that, you know, she pretty much put her guitar away for years, you could see... Um, the sadness in Linda's face. And uh, I think that um, that visit that we made in the film and that we captured on on, on uh, camera uh, inspired Diane. I mean, I think Diane uh, walked away from that encounter with Linda. It was the first time they'd seen each other in, in a couple of decades. And um, uh, Diane, she, she says it in the film. She says, you know, Linda Ronstadt, because... Um, she's um, suffering from a debilitating disease that she can't sing anymore. Diane, I think, came to the realization. She says, "Linda can't sing, and that's a tragedy. And and uh, uh, I can, and I will, if 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 uh, for no one else, but for for uh, uh, Linda Ronstadt. It's one of my favorite moments in the in the film where she's back in the studio and she's saying, "Screw this! I'm going to do my own damn records." and uh, you know, it's 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 just wonderful to see her out there. She's got a new album. She's performing again. And, uh, you know, she says she wants to, you know, that's how she wants to die. She wants to say, you know, good night, St. Louis, thank you, and walk off the stage and, and die. And I, I told her, well, you realize you can never play St. Louis tonight.
0: You're listening to an interview with Invisible director T.J. Parcell on 3CR's CR, In Your Face. 3CR. Tell us about the impacts the film has had on the uh, music industry in Nashville. Has it helped to shatter some of those pink ceilings?
1: Well, you know, we hope it will. Um, we, um, uh, we're just now hitting the festival circuit with the film. It certainly created a lot of buzz. We did a, um, uh, a, a fundraising screener um, at the Belcourt Theatre in Nashville uh, right before the pandemic in February of 2020. Um, We sold out three weeks in advance and uh, the audience in that theater, this is Music City. um, You know, yes, there were a number of people in the audience that were kind of related in one way or another with the um, uh, the women in the film. But there were a number of people that weren't and uh, they were deeply moved. They were on their feet uh, and uh, they've all been chomping at the bit, waiting for the film to be released. But, you know, as you know, the, the world shut down. Um, really just a few days after we did that screening, we were all set last year to premiere it at Frameline and um, we had a a festival tour lined up and kind of everything had to get put on hold. Um, But yeah, there's a, there's a lot of pent up demand. There's a lot of the people that have seen it want to see it again. Um, They, uh, and uh, uh, I, in fact, I just got off the phone with the Nashville film festival. They want to screen the film in October. Um, So we'll be, we'll be back here in the industry and, uh, hopefully shaking things up. Um, it's, um, uh, it's kind of a situation that's just gone on too long. Um, you know, I had some, uh, uh, straight, uh, uh, heterosexual audience members who came up to me and they said, you know, I'm really pissed off that we still have to, um, uh, uh, talk about this, that this kind of thing is still going on in, in 2021. Um, but, uh, you know, country music, the national music scene, um, I think it's it's one of the, the the holdouts in terms of just, you know, being more inclusive.
0: Yes, and your film really touches on how country music radio stations are really complicit in the suppression of, of queer musicians. Can
1: you tell us about that? Yeah, and, you know... <sighs> Country music especially is very dependent on country radio um, and country radio airplay is controlled by just a few corporations. And uh, uh, I, you know, I have to say that, you know, at, at one point through the the making of this film, I started to scratch my head and wonder how much of what these women were dealing with was because they were gay and how much of it had to do with there being uh, women um, country radio uh, the, the female airplay, it's like a 10 to one difference. Um, there was a, a study done in 2019 of a radio airplay and, uh, only 13% of radio airplay was given to women. So gay women are even a, a smaller subset of that. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I think that, uh, the, the patriarchy of, of country music and, and, and the power that country radio has over that industry is something that needs to be looked at. And, and one of the other things that we uncovered in the in the course of making this film is the, the, uh, the prevalence of sexual harassment uh, on the radio circuit. These young artists, these women, when they go out on the radio circuit, put up with a tremendous amount of harassment. Uh, from from the disc jockeys, from the program managers, um, and it's it's a big open secret, and uh, you know I, I, I think it's appalling, and we, we have um, one one uh, uh, person in the in the uh, in our film who is a prominent journalist in Nashville, uh, Robert Orman. He's written a lot about country music. In fact, he and his wife probably wrote um, the Bible on on women in country music, a, a book on uh, women in country music, there's a point in the film where he says, you know, he can't wait for terrestrial radio to just die because they are squeezing out everything that's played is, is very um, uh, homogenized um, and it's got a certain sound and it's got certain types of lyrics and they got a formula and it sells their, their, uh, their advertisements. And um, you know, it's, it's, it seems that some of the more interesting stuff that's being played these days in the States is on Americana. Um, and, uh, but radio really needs, uh, uh, it needs to be shaken up in my opinion.
0: And I imagine the country music radio circuit is really trying to appeal to an evangelical audience as well.
1: Yeah. Well, they, they certainly do have tend to have a, uh, a demographic that is uh, probably a little more narrow in their tastes. Um, uh, you know, if you, you look at the, a lot of the music that's played, I, I think uh, Pam, uh, Pam Rose in our film says, you know, that, you know, if it, if it doesn't have mama or trucks or beer in the lyrics, it's, uh, you know, probably uh, not going to get a lot of air, uh, radio airplay. And, and sadly, I think that's still how um, a lot of uh, the, the music is consumed um, uh, in, that, in that genre is, is through the radio.
0: TJ, tell us what project is next for you in the film world.
1: Uh, well, there's, there's, I, I've got a, uh, a screenplay, a narrative feature that I, I've been uh, trying to get off the ground. Um, it's based on a book I wrote, uh, Fish, A Memoir of a Boy in a Man's Prison, uh, about a 17-year-old gay kid that uh, uh, robs a photomat with a toy gun and ends up in an adult prison. And has to deal with uh, all the things that that one deals with in late adolescence, uh, you know identity sexuality, separation from family, and figuring out where and how they fit in the world and to have to do it in that world um, where uh, many of the definitions of those things is kind of twisted um, yet this kid you know comes out the other side of it is able to uh, uh, salvage enough of himself to later become an activist, an author, and a filmmaker.
0: It sounds like you're really, you know, empathic with, with, with people who have been marginalized
1: and are able to transcend that suppression. You know, I think that um, anyone who's suffered trauma, uh, deep trauma, um, uh, and is able to come through the other side of it and is grateful for having survived it, um, has a certain empathy and has an ability to uh, uh, connect with other people's pain, even though the circumstances behind that pain might be different. Um, um, and it's, uh, it's something that has served me well as a, as a filmmaker. I mean, I, I, I think that, uh, um, you know, I, I feel really blessed to, and uh, fortunate to have been able to spend the last couple of years with these women and uh, in their worlds and in their journeys, and, and I feel very privileged that they, they trusted me um, and were open and incredibly vulnerable um, about what their experiences were. And, I, I, you know, I think in some ways they, they sensed that I was there with them and uh, that they could trust me, and um, they did. And, um, you know, I think that uh, for me, my job was kind of very easy and um, simple. Uh, With this film, it was to create a safe space um, for these women to tell their stories, and uh, and uh, they have. And uh, you know, I I think we're all very, very proud of of what we've created.
0: Well, you should be very proud of it. Invisible is a wonderful film, a wonderful documentary. Tj Parcell, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me, James. I really appreciate you.
0: Three C R. And Invisible Screens at Nova in Melbourne on July 30, as part of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival.
2: Hey, Sister, what's your name? Hey, Sister. Glad that you came. A little bit of go away to make me feel at home. I got this dragon on my elbow. I'm gonna set it free to roam. I've got a little bit of triumph. Story, a little bit of brutalizing, a little bit of glory, I got a little bit of righteous murder, a little bit of loving daughter, a little bit of fallen angel. I had a little bit of Satan's water. I saved I've got Jesus on my wrist I've been Sister, Rolled my name on my chest Hey sister I slashed my arms into a mess A little bit eager To tell you what I know It's written on my body like Skin Deep Picture Show It's got a little bit of danger A little bit of history A little bit of womanizing A little bit of misery A little bit of blind and fury little bit of guitar playing, a little bit of wounded sainthood, and a little bit of sinful praying. I've been saved. I've got Jesus on my wrist. I've been chained. I've got a little blue house in in a little bit of story a little bit of righteous murder a little bit of loving daughter a little bit of fallen angel I had a little bit of Satan's water I've been saved I've got changed I've been checked
0: Band Milk There with Helen Begley on lead vocals saved. Well, yesterday I chaired with activist Rodney Croom about the federal government's religious discrimination bill and the political machinations involved.
3: Hi, James, thanks for having me on. What we know publicly uh, from Michaelia Cash, who's the federal attorney general, is that the bill will be introduced into parliament before the end of the year. And uh, what we know from sources within the Liberal Party, uh, uh, over and above that, is that, um, uh, yes, that's true. They expect it to be introduced before the end of the year, as early as when Parliament goes back, which is this coming month, I think. And that there will be provisions in it which could well be worse than the provisions that we've already seen, as if they weren't bad enough. And I know there's been some discussion uh, in the top ranks of the government about whether, as well as, this isn't as an example of how bad it could be, as well as um, overriding the Tasmanian Anti-Discrimination Act, it could also set up uh, a potential inconsistency and invalidation of state laws against conversion, LGBTIQ conversion practices. Uh, And obviously the target there is Victoria. Um, And this... Another live issue is whether to include in the legislation an actual right to religious freedom uh, taken out of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights so that those in the future who want to litigate against, say, LGBTIQ law reform have that entrenched right that they can use to, to, as, a, as a springboard to go to the High Court. Of course, the right to religious freedom is an important right, but the point is that in international human rights treaties it's balanced with all the other rights. Uh, And it says very clearly that you can't have religious freedom if it means um, treading on other people's uh, rights, such as equality or privacy or whatever it might be. But what the people who are advocating for this bill want is simply that right to religious freedom, whether any kind of balancing clause. And uh, you might have noticed, or your listeners might have noticed in the press, some uh, Liberal Party members, like Tim Wilson, for example, an openly gay liberal from Victoria, has said that um, they don't want uh, this to turn into a, a kind of de facto human rights charter for religion. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the dangers of entrenching one human right, the right to religious freedom, and not all of the others that would help balance that. And without that balance, then that would be a devastating provision for future LGBTIQ law reforms.
0: So what's given them the zest for these worsened provisions? Do they want to make these issues an election issue? Do they think that that would be um, strong ground for them?
3: Yes, precisely. Um, so your listeners will remember that this issue, issue has been on the table since the last election, basically, that uh, there were calls from um, some conservative faith leaders for this kind of legislation before the last election. After the last election, uh. uh Legislation was developed and um, then a second draft uh, after consultation and now we been our, on, our, on our third draft now should legislation come on, as we've said, before the end of the year. Um, and uh, there's no, there, it's no coincidence that that's been dragged out. That's been dragged out, uh, I'm sure, at least in part, so that the current government has a wedge against Labor in the lead-up to the next election. So that it can go to uh, conservative religious leaders in across the country, particularly, say, in Western Sydney, where there's some marginal seats or regional Queensland, and say, look, we've got this bill on the table. We're the ones on your side. It's only the Labor Party that might get in the way. So, um, yeah, I can imagine that that's exactly what the government's thinking. This is a wedge against Labor in exactly the same way that John Howard used marriage equality in 2004 as a potential wedge against the Labor Party ahead of the 2004 election. And, of course, that sets a really bad precedent because Labor caved straight away. It said, okay, yeah, we'll support Howard's ban on same-sex marriages, and it sailed through and it took us 13 years to undo that. Obviously, I don't want that to happen again, but there is a danger that Labor could cave on this if the, um, those strategists in the party feel that it somehow threatens the, their electoral results... Um, uh, or if the Catholic right-wingers in the party feel that, you know, it's time that they had a win uh, after, the, in their views, the left got a win on marriage equality. So, um, yeah, there are big dangers ahead.
0: And, of course, if there is strong opposition in the Senate, then potentially we could be heading towards a double dissolution election on these issues.
3: That's not inconceivable, yes. Um, it, uh, uh, it makes no sense to me that the government... The Morrison government would want to go to an election even in part on this because for most Australians it looks like a distraction in the middle of a pandemic. But um, if there are a number of issues, yes, that the Senate um, gets in the way of, and this is one of them, yes, then that's possible. And of course, whether it's a double disillusion uh, or just an ordinary election, um, either way, if this legislation hasn't passed, if Labor does stand up to it, then and the coalition is re-elected, then, of course, their line will be that they have a mandate for this. Um, the problem we face is a global one. Uh, you only have to see the news coming out of the United States to see that the movement for so-called religious freedom, which is which basically means rolling back discrimination protections for LGBTIQ people, that that is gathering pace. It's not going away. It's not fading away. More and more religious freedom... Legislation is being passed in state legisl, Republican-dominated state legislatures in the United States. Um, not only, I mean, it started off with wedding cakes, of course, you know, protecting bakers and other wedding service providers, so-called protecting, but now it's moved on to healthcare. So, um, and and discrimination in housing. So uh, now it's possible to discriminate in some states against LGBTIQ people in those areas if you have a religious objection to having anything to do with this. Um, that's the inspiration for the legislation here and as we've seen in New South Wales with Mark Latham introducing similar and even worse laws in the upper house there, this movement isn't going away, it's just getting worse.
0: Of course, the bill's provisions in the past, and presumably this time around, are very punitive towards women. You'd think the government would be very mindful of of not wanting to, you know, uh, be seen to further aggravate the very negative publicity it has around its policies and actions towards women.
3: Yeah, you'd think so. Um, you're right that the bill has uh, limited access to healthcare for women. Um, it It would allow less inclusive workplaces for women. Um, In some cases, it would allow discrimination, direct discrimination. So it is, as you say, punitive. Um, And I think one important element for defeating the bill when it comes back will be to highlight this and for uh, the voices of women's organisations across Australia to be heard, particularly by Labor. Um, The same can be said about... uh, Introducing this legislation in the middle of a pandemic. Um, it's not just women whose access to health care will be a problem. It's, it, it's a whole range of people who fall foul of traditional religious dogma. Um, uh, it will enable or um, well, it will strengthen the church's hand, hand when it comes to employing people in healthcare just on the basis of religion rather than, you know, medical competency. There's a whole lot of reasons why this is the worst legislation to introduce in the middle of a pandemic, when we need uh, uh, as equitable access to healthcare as possible. And again, I hope that there are healthcare bodies out there, healthcare, health professional unions and professional bodies, that make this case as strongly as possible.
0: And of course, the legislation also targets people with disabilities at a time when the government is attacking the National Disability Insurance Scheme.
3: Um, I think. I think um, of all the arguments against this legislation, this one is the strongest, that it does target people with disability. Um, and uh, those defenders of the bill who have picked up on this argument, they've, they've tried to deny it very vehemently because they know that it's a, it's a fatal one for the legislation, but it's unavoidable. I mean, I mentioned before, as an example, the, um, the override of the Tasmanian Anti-Discrimination Act. So, what this bill will do is mean that it's okay to um demean and degrade people in the name of religion uh, the provisions of the Tasmanian anti-discrimination act that it would override uh, uh, apply to people with disability and many different people the majority of cases come from people with disability overwhelmingly uh are people complaining about being degraded and demeaned in all aspects of their life including sometimes by people of faith um you know, from you know, telling them that their disability is a result of bad karma or it's a sin or they're possessed by demons or, or trying to exorcise them or whatever it might be. Um, unfortunately, that stuff is um, more common than we realise and that's just the kind of thing that complaints are made about, uh, most often resolved in mediation, I have to add. But what the federal government's bill will do is actually take away the right of people with disability to take those cases. They can take those cases now, but in the future, under this federal legislation, they won't be able to do that. And I just, I do not understand how in modern Australia, if that, is, if that is made clear to people, they could possibly agree that that's a good thing.
0: You mentioned the government's electoral calculations before around winning the next election on this bill. Do you think that will be enough to dull or deaden the uh, opposition from the queer MPs within the government?
3: Um, well, to be honest, um, I, I actually uh, I think we should give a round of applause to the uh, queer and queer-friendly uh, government MPs who have spoken out against this bill. Uh, Warren Inch has spoken quite strongly. Um, I mentioned Tim Wilson before, uh, and there have been others as well. And to be frank, they've spoken more strongly than a lot of Labor members. Um, even though the anti-discrimination legislation that will be overridden is almost all of it a Labor legacy. Um, so uh, my hope is that those Liberal members will keep on speaking out and uh, it'll give courage to Labor to do the same. Um, we haven't heard a single Federal Labor member condemn this bill in the terms of Warren Institute. He recently said that he would not vote for it, that it was just a, a, a religious privilege bill. He hit the nail right on the head. Have we heard that rhetoric from Labor? No, not at all. Hopefully, uh, Liberals speaking out in the way that Warren has and Tim will um, encourage Labor to be just as strong.
0: What do you think Michaelia Cash's motivations are for supporting such a hardened and harsher version of this bill, if indeed that is what eventuates? Is it purely political ambition and shoring her position up as Attorney-General?
3: I can't. I can't say, um, the, the narrative, the religious freedom narrative is, as I said earlier, quite strong and it's getting stronger every day. This idea that, um, people of faith are being discriminated against and disadvantaged, uh, just because of their, of their views, um, and, and that they need protection, uh, from attacks from the so-called secular left and the gay lobby and etc. Um. That's a very strong narrative, in, in, in unfortunately, amongst many religious leaders. Uh, it's it's not true. It's, it's not a narrative that I think has any factual basis. And it's a narrative which is being used, this victim narrative, to, uh, as we've already said, to roll back discrimination protections that have been perfectly fine for years, no problem, um, to allow discrimination in the... Uh, uh, against LGBTIQ people, women, people with disability and whoever falls foul of traditional religious doctrine. So um, the government says it's about protecting people uh, of faith from discrimination. What it's actually doing is allowing discrimination in the name of faith. Um, But the narrative has become so strong that it's almost impossible, I think, for some of the religious leaders involved, and this is from my personal interaction with them, it's almost impossible for them to have any kind of empathy for LGBTIQ people, or whoever else might fall foul of this, they 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 so strongly believe that they are victims that this increasingly secular secular and and sinful world is is and, uh, as one said to me, throw them to the lions. Uh, sorry, throw them to the lawyers is what they said. Obviously, echoing that ancient phrase, throw them to the lions. They so strongly believe that that they just can't see the damage that this will do for others and even quite good-hearted people seem to be swept up in this. I don't know if Michaelia Cash is in that boat or whether it's purely political um, calculation or if it's a bit of both. It's often hard to tell with politicians, but I know that the people she's listening to um, uh, and uh, talking to about this legislation um, are, are deeply within this narrative and, um, we really just can't see a different point of view.
0: You're listening to an interview with Rodney Croom on 3CRs in your face. 3CRs. Of course, it's been over a 1,000 days since Scott Morrison promised to protect queer kids in religious schools from discrimination. You must be still waiting for that promise to eventuate. and must be very disappointed that it hasn't.
3: Yes, well, it was before the last election. Um... <laughs> Scott Morrison said that uh, that his government would protect LGBTIQ kids from discrimination if they were in faith-based schools. This was a result of the Ruddock Review into Religious Freedoms, which highlighted the fact that there are laws in most states which still allow this kind of discrimination. And uh, much, I think, to the government's surprise, there was an outcry. Many Australians didn't know this was the case, and they and lots of people went, like, What? How can we be allowing this kind of discrimination? So in response, uh, the government said, we'll fix it. Um, it hasn't fixed it yet. It was a 1,000 days last week, I think last Wednesday. And uh, instead, they've, just, they've sent it off to the Australian Law Reform Commission for an inquiry, and then they put that, com- that inquiry on hold until the Religious Discrimination Bill went through. So um, it's just been backed up behind all of this other religious freedom um, rigmarole and obviously, isn't going to happen in this term, which is really disappointing because it's not too far in the future where some uh, a queer kid in grade seven in a Catholic college um, will be graduating before they, you know, without any of the protections that they were promised when they were twelve. Um, it's 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 very disappointing, um, and it reinforces the need for us to be pushing for these reforms not only federally but at a state level. Um, queer kids are protected in faith schools in Tasmania, in the ACT and there's no reason that that can't be the case in the other states particularly Victoria where we have what uh, a government that uh, consistently trumpets its queer credentials well uh, I think it's time that the Andrews government turned its attention to this um, this is an important issue that clearly isn't going to be resolved federally for quite a while
0: of course, you're from the group Just Equal. Just Equal has been doing some work around the census. Give us an update about that.
3: Uh, yes, well, similar problem. Um, the Australian Bureau of Statistics uh, was looking at um, ways that it could count LGBTIQ people, that we could actually indicate on the census sexual orientation, gender identity, uh, variations in sex characteristics, that kind of thing, um, so that... Uh, there was more information there for people who are planning services and what kind of resources are needed for LGBTIQ communities in different parts of the country. Um, it's the kind of baseline information you need if you're going to have a proper response to the issues that LGBTIQ people still face, health, um, education, standard of, li- of living, uh, and discrimination, of course. Um, but the government said no. The government said, no, we're not going to include those questions. And uh, we've put together a declaration that we're hoping a number of LGBTIQ organisations will sign on to. Um, individuals are also welcome to sign. Uh, that'll be up uh, publicly available in a day or two. And um, uh, we'll be taking that declaration to the ABS, to the government, to the opposition, saying, if you can't count us this time, make sure
0: you count us in 2026. Another campaign Just Equals, been working on has been Respect at Work. Uh, what can you tell us about that campaign? Well,
3: in Australia, one of the main pieces of legislation protecting workers from discrimination is the Fair Work Act. Uh, unfortunately, the Fair Work Act doesn't uh, protect trans people or intersex people in the same way it protects, say, gay, lesbian, bisexual people. It doesn't mention gender uh, identity or variations of sex characteristics as grounds uh, for complaints so we uh, uh, just equal has made a submission to the respect at work uh, inquiry that's currently going on um, which was triggered by the legislation the government introduced in response to the respect at work uh, report uh, and we're hopeful that um, that as part of this respect at work process the fair work act which will be amended uh, regardless, can be amended to to also include uh, equal protections for trans and intersex people. Even if the government doesn't want to do that, then uh, we're hopeful that Labor and uh, smaller parties will be able to introduce amendments that might have a chance.
0: Rodney, just in summary, it sounds like the government's trying to do as much kind of hindrance and regression towards the LGBTIQ community as possible before the next election. And it seems like the agenda is that even if they lose that election, that those changes will be locked into place and make it you know, harder for another government to undo. What are your thoughts on that?
3: In the past, um, when we've had governments that haven't been very LGBTI friendly, those governments have at least tried to appear balanced. So they'll enact a reform in one area but not another, or they'll um, pass legislation to... To take our rights away let's say with the marriage act in 2004 with the howard government or but at the same time they'll do something so that they can they'll, they'll fund a program or they'll or in the case of the howard government recognize uh, interdependent couples same-sex interdependent couples so there's always been that attempt to at least appear balanced uh, in situations where governments aren't very friendly to us i've never seen a situation like this where there isn't even a desire anymore to appear balanced there's absolutely nothing coming out of this government that is positive for LGBTIQ people at the moment. There's nothing that they've decided that they want to give us in return for passing the Religious Discrimination Bill or um, uh, you know, protecting LGBTIQ kids in face schools. There's nothing. I, I find it astounding. Um, we're going down a similar path in this country as in the United States, where the parties are just becoming more and more polarised And the Conservative Party is losing touch with um, its smaller liberal base. That said, I want to give credit to the state liberal parties that are uh, not going down that path yet, at least. Uh, In my state in Tasmania, in South Australia, um, we have governments that are looking at reforms, like the banning insects um, uh, surgeries. Uh, non medically necessary surgeries on intersex kids, or conversion practices, or or providing more funding for services, or whatever it might be, there's still some degree of balance there, which is great. Um, but federally, I just don't see it. It's very disappointing.
0: So federally, this sounds like you know a symptom of of a rise in religious authoritarian fundamentalism that's sweeping government policy.
3: Yes. Um. And more, to be more nuanced about it, I think it's, it's, or to look at the dynamics within the Liberal Party, it means that the smaller liberals, liberals, moderate liberals, um, are steadily losing their influence. Um, they're, they're not able to keep some control over public policy, some influence over public policy like they have been able to in the past. I cited those two state governments because I want to, I don't want people to despair. I think there is still a balance in some parts of the Liberal Party. Uh, but, yeah, yeah I, just, I just don't see it federally. And I, I really don't know what the answer is, uh, except for us to continue to advocate as loudly as we can um, and uh, to continue to remind people that we're here and we
0: can't be ignored. Ronald Krim, thank you so much for your time. Always great to chat on 3CR. Thanks, James.